Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. We have a non-LGBTQ podcast for you. We do those at times. This is with my friend Brock Bevel calling in from Arizona. Welcome to the podcast, Brock. Hey, thank you, Richard, for having me. Um, Brock's going to tell his story about being an undercover police officer in the Mesa, Arizona department. And uh, he will talk about a shooting that he experienced in 2001 and then being run over in 2002, which led to his retirement from the Mesa, Arizona Police Department and some really difficult things that then came into his life. Brock is alive and he is alive to tell his story. And um, he's a married father of seven kids, two grandkids. He's a member of the church, um, grew up in Scottsdale. And I think he'll talk about the podcast he hosts and the things that he's doing. And with a lot of my guest listeners, I don't really know their story before they share their story. So I will be joining you and hearing Brock's story for the first time. But I just have a hunch this story will help all of us. And Brock's one of already one of my heroes for his willingness just to talk about really complicated things and things that have come into his life and and he's been able to navigate through and now bring hope and healing to others. Is that okay for an introduction, Brock? Love it. Thank you. That, that was a great introduction. So I will just turn it over to you to start wherever you want to start. And, and thank you for having me. And, and my goal for me now to you as I've listened to other other of your podcast. I have a sister-in-law who absolutely adores your podcast. I've got a, a dental office in Mesa who loves your podcast. And I, you know, we don't, we have experiences for a reason. I know that God doesn't throw this at us to make us suffer. And so my goal is just to talk about experiences that I had in hopes that we can reach other men and women, that they can, they can be buoyed up by what we have. I, I was born and raised in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, I was born in the church, eight brothers and sisters, very, very strong uh, family unity. Mom and dad were, were strong in the church. Dad was a convert. Mom and dad were from Mississippi. So they're kind of, uh, they're, they're, they're tough people. They're strong people. And they, they walked through the the sixties in Mississippi and moved to Arizona and and brought with them just some grittiness and, and toughness. Uh, we grew up in the church, loved the church. And I, and I think that led to a lot of my, uh, I guess, maybe some dysfunction or some, some ability to get lost a little bit as a member. Because as a young man, and, and I, you, I like to share this because I hope other people can, can be attached with it. I've run the gamut of addiction in my life. And most of my addictions stem from pornography that I first saw when I was eight years old. And the reason I share that is not to, not to make light of pornography, but I carried that up until I was 42. The difference between my opioid abuse that I will get into and my pornography abuse is there was a, there was a hook when I saw pornographer pornography for the first time, it felt like something grab my brain and just would not let go. And then I have this massive dilemma where I'm trying to love God, trying to be a great member of the church, trying to be worthy to get the priesthood, trying to prepare myself for eternal marriage, trying to prepare myself to serve a mission. All while this struggle with pornography was just, it was like doom and gloom hanging over me. And, and, I, and I'm sure that the members who struggle with pornography understand that. 
but I could not grasp it, could not kick it. So there was some, some trauma in our home early on. I was able to uh, be raised by a great mom and dad who pushed us. I, I graduated and served a mission. I went to Paraguay on my mission. Loved it. Greatest experience of my life. I know everybody talks about that. But when I was a young man, I. And I remember I was probably going through my dad's closet. And in the very back of his closet, there was a suit that was covered by a bag. And I remember, Richard, when I pulled the suit out, it was actually a police uniform and it had the badge on there. And there was a hat that had a badge on it. And it was all the leather gear. And I remember taking it out with such excitement, putting this on and, and the shirt came all the way down past my hands and nothing fit me. But I remember looking at that mirror and going, this is what I want to do. I want this feeling. And so when I got home up my mission, I immediately applied to become a police officer. I played some college football in Eastern Arizona and I tested for the police department. And the first time I was blessed, I got on. Awesome. And there was 550 men and women testing for eight spots. So one of the blessings was to serve a mission in South America, which gave me the ability to speak fluent Spanish, bringing that back as a Caucasian male in a police department speaking Spanish. So I think that was probably one of the hooks that gave me her hand. And uh, so, Richard, I, I like to tell a little bit about the police department that I didn't like work in patrol. But you see these guys in police cars and they're driving around, they're taking traffic accidents and they're going to people's home for domestic violence. I automatically early in my career realized I did not want to do traffic. I did not want to do those neighbor dispute calls and babysit adults. What I was drawn to because of my past was drugs. I loved arresting so-called in quotes, bad guys that were carrying drugs. Cause I felt like they were killing people. They were, they were hurting families. You know, when you, when you as a police officer see a traffic accident involving a guy with a DUI in the face, he kills the family. That's tough. Especially when you're not raised in it and you don't understand the chemical hook that alcohol and drugs have. And so I started developing this disdain for individuals who use drugs and alcohol. I mean, I was like, it, it made me mad. And, and let's fast forward into the, the, the scene that you talked about when I was in a shooting. This was December 27, 2001, two days after Christmas. And you know what the a DUI task force is when all the officers are focused on those days, DUIs. Well, Long story short, our officers got behind a guy in a high pursuit, high, high speed chase. He drove all over the valley, came back and pulled right next to a high school and flipped a U-turn in a cul-de-sac. And so we did a felony traffic stop on him. And, and during the time he was calling dispatch and he was telling her, listen, I'm not going back to jail. This will be my fifth DUI. I can't do it. And I remember my brain thinking, man, this is two days after Christmas. How can you be so abundant that you can't function and make good decisions? 
Bottom line, he he gets out of the car and we do everything textbook. We taser him, we beanbag him, we hit him with pepper spray, we let the canine bite him twice, and he just stands there. And he makes the decision to get back into his car or his truck, his big, his big uh, Z71 truck doesn't drive and comes at us. And I have to shoot him through the windshield two days after Christmas and kill him. Wow. And Richard, I remember pulling this guy out of the vehicle and putting him on the ground. And his, he, he, because of where we had to shoot him, it, it was his face because we had to shoot through the windshield. He was in a closed, confined cabin, right, from the vehicle. Right. And I was so angry. I was so mad thinking, what? Who are you, man, that you would make me and my these other officers kill you? Like, what is it about this alcohol? What is it about these drugs that will make people just lose their minds. And so it was interesting that I was angered by it. And so let's fast forward even three months later. And I was involved in a, in a traffic situation where I'm going to give, I'm going to give a lot of our LDS listeners some, some good Intel here. Most of the confidential informants that we used were, were street level prostitutes because they were on the streets. They knew everything going on. And so this prostitute gave us some information that there was going to be a drug deal. The drug deal was coming in from a mom and her 12-year-old daughter. The mom was agreeing to sell her daughter for sex in exchange for drugs. Now you have kids. Most people out there who are listening have kids. And you're thinking, wait a minute, how can a mom get to a point to where She's okay selling her daughter for for drugs, for sex, right? And what happened was she showed up. The drug dealer showed up. The drug dealer goes to get the girl out of the car. And we come in and and stop the scene. And mom doesn't want to go to jail, of course. So she throws her car in reverse and runs over my partner and myself. Wow. My partner was caught under the car, breaks his back. I get my right foot caught, break my ankle. I return, blow my knee out. She hits me right in the knee. And again, all these thoughts from the, from the shooting, from this incident being run over, I was so, I'm like, it just, it just invigorated me and fueled me. And so because of my injuries, I had multiple surgeries. And I remember the first day going into the doctor, the doctor said, Brock, you're a police officer. You'll never get hooked on these things. And so he was prescribing me opioids. And so in the back of my brain, I'm like, listen, I'm not like them. I'm not a drug addict. I, I, I'm a police officer. I, 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 wear, I wear a badge and, and I'm uh, the thin blue line and all that stuff. And it's, I, I got it figured out till I didn't. And I come into the police department and they said, hey, because of the nature of your injuries, we're retiring you. You're not fit for duty. You can't come back and work. And Richard, what happened was at that moment in time, I lost who I was. Wow. I lost my identity. And it, those same struggles that I struggled with as a youth of feeling worthy and feeling part of a team and feeling like I could do it. I went from living a life of like Nitro Circus to being home now, changing my, my kids' diapers, helping my wife, doing dishes. And it was like a totally different life. It's not that it was a, it's a bad life. 
being a stay-at-home dad. It was just different than what I was used to. And so I went through this massive depression. And because, Richard, I didn't know who I was. And I want people to understand that. Like, even though I was a police officer and, and I was fueled by that, and that was my, that was my drive, it didn't identify me. And so I started abusing the opioids. And I noticed the more opioids I took, the sensation of being angry and depressed went away. So I could use more and more and more until the point that I felt addicted. And so that, that process lasted 10 years. It cost me a marriage. Uh-huh. It cost me massive time with my kids, loss of trust with my kids and my ex-wife. You know, who wants their, who wants their husband to, uh, to care of himself? And so that was a big fight that I, that I got into. And so I'll just fast forwarded, fast forward to my, my rock bottom. I was in my room and just like I always would, I'd walk to the medicine cabinet, grab an opioid, take it. And, and here's what you have to understand is I, I didn't have to lie to anybody. I could show them the scars on my body and say, look, man, you don't understand. I, I've been run over. I have had massive surgeries. It's okay for me to take these. But that was the ploy. And plus, because I worked undercover, I knew how to lie. I was the most maniacal person and I could hide everything until I couldn't. And then on this occasion, I went into my bathroom, opened my medicine cabinet, popped the pill, closed it up and shut that door. And then that glass, that reflection into my life, into really who I was and where I was, I was living in a crack house, basically my house. When I looked in that reflection, I'm like, Brock, you live in a crack house. Look at what you're living in. It's a pigsty, but my pills were perfectly placed. I knew how many I had all the numbers on the pills. So if I was ever getting low, I could respond to the doctor. Hey doc. So I'm an A type personality that infuriated me. So I ripped the cabinet open, grabbed all the pills, opened them and dumped them all in that toilet and then flushed them. Wow. Now, massive, massive. That was a bad thing to do. You don't please for anybody that's listening. That's like, I want to overcome opioids. That's not the way to do it. Because there's now processes where doctors help you detox off the withdrawals. You don't have to cold turkey it, but it's what I needed in my life. And Richard, what happened was I made the decision. And now if I could have had, if I had scuba diving gear and I could have got myself down in those toilets and in those pot pipes, I, I would have taken them out and used them. That's how scared I was. Now I'm going to be blunt with you about the withdrawal process and the detox process. I was in my bathroom three days and I have the water running and I'm throwing up and I'm, I'm going through like these flu like symptoms, the worst pain. I felt like my skin was on fire. Like someone was burning my face and I was throwing up so hard that I thought my backbone was going to come out my mouth. 
And I was, I defecated myself. I urinated myself. Like it was vile that day three, I remember saying, okay, now this is where I made the wrong mistake. I'm like, okay, God, listen, okay. I'm going to tell you right now, I need to get like, you need to get me some power so I can get out of here. And if you do, I'll, I'll change my life. And I remember hearing his voice and he said, Brock, you haven't even begun because if I let you out now, you're going to go get a pill, take a pill and you're going to feel better. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, God knows me. He knows my thoughts because that's what I was thinking, Rich. All I wanted to do was to be out of pain for just a moment. And so I'm like, okay, if he's really here, if he knows what's going on, he's present, I'm doing this. I'm going to go all the way. I'd already gone three days. I'm going until he says stop. And so I stayed there. I stayed in that bathroom for seven days was my detox before I had enough. I mean, I would get up and shower and turn the cold and hot. And it was, it was, it was horrible. And anybody that's listening understands the fear of detoxing because it is so painful and it can kill you. But on the seventh day, and there's no symbolism between the Lord and I and none of that, but on my seventh day, I remember being at that point of humility and I said, okay, God, I'm not making any, any deals with you, but, I'm, but I, you know how I'm feeling. I can't do this any longer. Like, I want you to take my life right now. Like, let's just end this because I can't, I can't do this. Or give me the power to walk out of this bathroom and be different. Let me be different. Let me, let me change other people's life through my story. And I remember having that conversation with them. And so it was an immediate, immediate agreement between God and I. And after seven days of sitting in the bathroom, this power that I've never felt before in my life came into my body. And, and you're old like me, you, you understand WWF was a big thing back in the day. And when Hulk Hogan was the champion, there was always a moment in his match where he's getting beaten. They raised his hand and it dropped like he had no energy and they, and it dropped. And the third time he just, he raised his hand and like, started shaking it and the whole stands getting, And that's exactly like that power that I felt coming to my body. I stood up and I said, okay, here we go. This is it. This is, this is my, this is pivot point. This is my opportunity to be the guy that I need to be for him. No longer for me. It's not about me. I'll, I want to praise him. And so that's kind of where I took, um, that was my, that was my opportunity that he gave me to be a different individual. And so that was kind of uh, the start of all the, the, the beautiful things I'm doing now. Brock, that's a powerful story. I'm not sure I've ever heard a story like the story you're sharing with our listeners. And thanks for your courage to share it. Thanks for taking us to that bathroom of hell for seven days. Thanks for being honest about your journey with addiction. I think that takes the shame out and it, it allows other people to connect with your story. I love this, lo- this line, change other people's lives through my story. I love the purpose you have now in your story and that pivot point of hell in your bathroom. I don't know what words describe those seven days. Um, and just then um, being able to work through that. But, you know, I, I admire you just not being consumed in anger and bitterness because here you are as a public servant doing things that are helping your community there. 
um, and that shooting and then being run over are things that you were just doing what you were supposed to be doing. And then it led to innocently being addicted to opioids. And of course, you didn't say one day, I'm going to want to be addicted to opioids. Can't even say that word right. And so I, I admire you just not being consumed with anger and bitterness for the curveballs that aren't your fault that came into your life that robbed you of a marriage, cost you relationships, and brought you to that point of just pure hell and despair. It's a credit to you. It's a credit to our Heavenly Father. It's a credit to the atonement. Um, so respect to you. And I know you don't want to be elevated to the point of perfection, but respect for you for sharing your story and being so real and so authentic and so honest. And just keep, I'll just let you keep talking now. Now you've kind of got this pivot point where you're going to change other people's lives to your story. Um, just keep sharing where you want to go. Thank you. And I appreciate that, that, you know, I realized in my addiction that I was sick and I was only sick as my secrets. Everything that I did in pornography, which always led to masturbation. And I know that's like, we don't talk about it, but gosh, dang it. We need to start talking about this stuff. Agreed. Um, and, and because it's, it's keeping us sick. And it's hard because I love the church, but we, we're still not there yet to where we can openly have these conversations. And I'm so, so honored to have this with you because it reaches more people and maybe they can see it and say, well, man, if these two guys can talk about it, I can talk about it. I felt like in my whole process, I was feeding a monster and that monster was under my bed. And as long as I kept it safe and nobody knew about it, I could pacify it and feed it. But I realized there was going to come a time in my life where I, I couldn't feed it anymore and I had to fight it. And fighting it for all of us looks different. For me, it was exposure. I was exposed. I, I struggled so hard with pornography that it cost me my marriage because of infidelity. Right? That, I mean, that's where it came to. And then I was married a second time and pornography played a role in that. I was never happy, you know, and, and that's, that's all me. And what the problem is, is I had to take some ownership of my addiction of my life. Did I have these experiences that, that sucked? Yes. But what was I going to do with it? And I tried to figure out what the Lord wanted me to do with it. And, and so the reason I'm sharing this is because I want people to understand that you're sick as your secrets. As soon as you let those secrets out, that monster under your bed can't attack you any longer. It's exposed. It's out there. Now there's other people fighting that demon with you, that monster, and you, you have a team of people. And when I finally realized that, and that the more we talk about it, not war stories, because there's a fine line there where, so, so let me so after I, I did this, I started a drug and alcohol recovery program a few years later, and I ran the program for five and a half years, men and women struggling with pornography, uh, abuse, drugs, alcohol. I mean, they brought the gamut. And so I really loved doing that work, but I realized I was missing the people that I wanted to talk to. I wanted to talk to the men. Right. And that's something that that a lot of people don't understand. I want to work with men. I want to I, I want to work with people like me that understand, because 
an alcoholic, I don't really understand because I never traveled that road. I didn't understand the depths of that, but opioids and pornography, I get that. And I, and I feel like I can, I can work with that. So when I started the program, I, I based it on four areas and I'll, I'll really quickly give it to you. If you look in your life and four areas of your life are in accordance with one another, you're, you're doing a great job. But most of us that struggle with mental health or addiction, there's one of the areas or two of the areas that are off. So when I talk about this, it's home, your home life, your health, and that's mental, physical, and spiritual, right? Your purpose and your community. And if you look at everything that we're struggling with, and I'm talking with someone that's struggling with who they are as an individual, it's always going to come down to one of those four areas. What's my home life like? What's my health like? And when I talk health, it's mental, physical, spiritual. It's important that our spirituality is right. How's my mental health? How am I eating? Am I exercising? All these things into it to make you stronger. And then what's your community like? If, if our community is just people in the church, we got to venture out and have more people. And that's why I started podcasting is I wanted to meet more people like me who can like sh- have a voice and that can help other people. And then your purpose, like I realized through my, my purpose was no longer about me. My purpose became when I got up in the morning, I wanted to help somebody. And I want to help somebody get through addiction. And it sounds so crazy, but my life feels more complete now because I get to share my story and talk to guys like you and to help men who are struggling because God gave me the opportunity. In that bathroom, he gave me the opportunity to touch people in the future. And you asked me, uh, you know, you could have been bitter. I could have been but I feel like it was such a cool platform that God gave me. He gave me relevance. He gave me purpose. He gave me a new identity. And those things I had lost in active addiction, that 10 years was black. It was miserable. It was difficult. Yes, I was trying to raise my kids. Yes, I was trying to find my spirituality. But I had been excommunicated from the church because of my actions. I got back and was baptized. The same actions, Richard, carried on in my life. I didn't have it under control. And so I'm disfellowshipped. Then I come back to church and it was just like this revolving door of chaos. And so until I figured that out, I was sick. And so I I hope that that makes sense. And you know, what's interesting is I got a comment this morning from one of my guys saying, Hey, Brock is, is addiction is, is addiction or disease? What came first? Is it, what, what do you think about it? Right. Is, is addiction a disease? And I'm like, listen, I I'm scared when people get to that point because it takes the ability to heal away. And the first step of the AA is admit that you're powerless. Love that. The problem is if I'm powerless do I now take the ability of the atone my life away? I do have to reach out to my heavenly father, but if I'm powerless, where do I go? It creates inaction, 
right? Does that, does that make sense? And I, so that's where, that's where I, I, I kind of, I don't want to, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but that stuff is really, this is personal to me. It makes sense to me. I think we like your soapbox, Brock. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You've, you have a gift of communication. Um, You've been doing this um, for a while and are very good at communicating about your journey. I love these four things, home, help, purpose, community. I love that you have relevance. I love that you're doing it for him. Um, you have learned so much and have walked such a um, unique road. You know, I just, you are in a position now as you're doing and have been doing to help people in a unique way that probably wouldn't be possible if you hadn't walked this road. It's not theoretical. This is not a grad school in textbook studying opiates and porn and being run over. This is frontline real life experience that then I think gives you the ability to heal other people and give other people hope because they know you're talking from first experience. I love some of these visuals. You're this monster under the bed. And as long as that monster stays under the bed, you're feeding the monster. But if you bring it, and that's sort of shame, you know, you bring that monster out from under the bed and and bring it out in the light that shame kills the monster. Or light kills shame. And um, as I look at you, listeners, I can see Brock on my screen. There's no shame with Brock. There's no like arrogant pride either. There's just real humility of who he is and and real peace about who he is and his ability then to heal others. I'd love to have you talk about your podcast. I'd love to have people connect with anything you're doing. Um, podcast, just share with our listeners what you're doing so they can connect with you. Uh, I appreciate that. I, I'm super blessed. I want to say that first of all, I run a podcast called Chase the Vase. It's the name of my business. It's on Instagram and Facebook, and you can find me anywhere on that. And on that, we talk about real situations. We speak with recovering addicts, police officers, first responders, those who are battling, those men who can teach us about being gritty and how to overcome obstacles. And the second one, you may have heard of a few of these names, but I work with a man named Max Hall, yes. who's, a, who's a BYU graduate, uh, Arizona Cardinal. We run a podcast called The Agents of Recovery. Max Hall and Blue Robinson, who's a therapist in Utah who runs Addict to Athlete. The three of us get on once a week and we it was actually a revelation. If you want to know the truth, I, I interviewed Max Hall and Blue Robinson on my own podcast. And when I got off, Heavenly Father, and this is the true story, tells me you need to you need to do a podcast for men that you can have men topics and and reach out to real men out there who are struggling. But you need to find the two guys. And so, immediately, Blue and I connect. And I just throw him out, would you, would you come on a podcast with me? And he's like, sure. And I said, Hey, I got to find one more guy. That's what, that's what God wants me to do. which is crazy that he's guiding that. And then I, I interview Max. And as soon as we're done talking, like you're, you're not going to believe this, but God wants me to have you on my podcast and we're going to call it agents of recovery. And you blue and I are going to do it. And he's like, absolutely. And it's been the funnest. It's been an amazing journey with just three men who have all experienced addiction. You know, Max uh, experienced a heroin addiction after BYU. So that's been, that's been fun. 
And that's kind of segue to what I'm doing now. I work with men and men uh, and I, it's called the stripling warrior challenge. And you can find that online, www.striplingwarriorchallenge. And I take them through a five-day boot camp journey and teach them how to, to deal with early stages of pornography, how to, how to identify it, identify if you're addicted to it, and, uh, and really just go to work. And, and, I, and I believe, and I, maybe, Richard, you can speak on this, I honestly feel like trauma in our lives are fueling a lot of our addictions. What came first, the chicken or the egg? If you ask me that question in addiction, trauma always precedes addiction. I don't know many people that said, hey, I just started smoking weed and I loved it and never had past trauma or things that they are medicating themselves for. So those are the kind of deep dives that we take in our in our program. Um, I love all the things that you're doing. I love the people you've connected with. I've had a lot of respect for Max Hall, um, for what he's doing, talking about his journey. That's been a big story in the local media in Utah. Um, respect to Max and all of you for Brave Blue, I think is the other name you mentioned, and creating a podcast, a couple podcasts you mentioned, a platform. Love what you're doing with the Stripling Warrior um, Challenge, I believe you called it. We'll link listeners to all of those in the show notes, the podcast notes. So if you're trying to write any of that down, just look in the show, the podcast description, and we'll have links there. Um, you know, we've t- done a bunch of podcasts on pornography. I was a Singles Word Bishop listeners, and um, probably most of the men in my YSA were, were working through that. and. Um, you know, I didn't have a lot of training on that, to be honest, Brock. And I, I finally sort of centered on the iceberg concept that what I was seeing above, above the iceberg was pornography use. But if I really wanted to help the YSA solve that, we need to sort of put pornography use on the shelf and talk about what's going on at the bottom of the iceberg. And often that took a therapist, but, um, but often trauma and sort of, it wasn't like this intentional, this is how I'm going to turn away from God. Now it became, it could become an addiction. And obviously it was a sin, but often sort of understanding what was the bottom of the iceberg um, was key to helping the YSA and pornography use. And also feeling that the love of God was not conditional in their life, that, that, that even though they were not keeping commandments that they were of worth and worthy for God's love and they were not outside the circle of God's love because I'm sure your younger self pre-mission age just this narrative in your head about pornography use and who you were and this monster under the bed so to speak put you in a pretty bad spot and um, even though you're doing everything you know how to do so I love that you're mentoring there's such a need for that. And you know this, it's sort of the wounded healer idea that we share on the podcast. The people that kind of walk these roads are often the very best to lead other people out of that desert because they know that desert. So I'd love you, if you want to talk more about pornography use right now, of just any listeners that are trying to put that behind them, you could go further there or opiate use or just wherever you'd like to go. Yeah, if you don't mind, let me let me uh, just build what you said because you're absolutely right. And I don't, I don't know if I should say thank you. Congratulations for doing the Bishop thing. That's always, that's a big fear of mine, you know, being put in that place. And, and, and it's, you're doing the best you can trying to, trying to help these young men. 
what I struggled with the most was feeling unworthy. It was crazy that we in our church put so much credence in being worthy, being worthy for that next step. And I was so scared to tell somebody that I was struggling with pornography because it's kind of a, it's gross, right? That's what, when you hear about pornography, ah, it's gross, disgusting. I can't believe you look at that, but we all sin differently. We all have something that we're carrying. It might be overeating. It might be you blow up on your kids out of anger. It's just what you've learned, past trauma, behaviors, right? And so what happened with me, I'm going to give you a little, a real quick glimpse into my pornography life, just so you can break it down. There, there's a pornography cycle. There's an addiction cycle that always starts with a thought. Okay. Your first, your first indulging in any addiction is the thoughts. Would you agree? Yeah. So if I'm, if I, I'm feeling like I want to eat sugar, the first thing I have is I have a, a, a thought, Hey, let's get some trigger. So that is your trigger, right? Your triggers, your first one. I'm triggered to eat sugar. I'm triggered to look at pornography. I'm triggered to do whatever my behavior is, go to the gym. The second one is your thought is based on that trigger. And a trigger, what people don't understand is only 15 to 20 seconds. So if you can withstand that and not eat that sugar for 15 to 20 seconds and change your mind, you're probably going to beat that trigger that time. But what happens is the thought gets longer and longer and turns into a craving. People don't really understand there's a difference between a trigger and a craving. And the difference is a craving has a physical change in your body. Like when you start craving sugar, you can kind of taste it in your taste buds. Or if I put a lemon here and cut it in half, start squeezing it, you're going to feel that in your glands. Be like, oh man, I can, I can totally tell what you're saying. Well, with pornography, your trigger is an erection, right? Your, your, or sorry, your craving, your trigger is the thought of looking. Your thought is, hey, let me start looking at this stuff. It starts building. My trigger is, oh my goodness, I'm looking at this stuff. Now I have an erection. As soon as I got an erection, guys, we're in trouble. How many of us, and I hope this doesn't offend, but let's be real. Let's act like, man, how many of us get to an erection and then say, okay, hey, guess what? I'm going to back out now. I'm too far into this. Most can't. When you have a dozen donuts in front of you, it's no different. Like I, I'm, if, I, if, I, if I get to the point where I eat when I'm in trouble, so then we have that remorse. Okay, what do I do? I use, I either masturbate or I eat sugar or whatever my, my addiction is. I have that use, then I have that massive remorse. I can't believe I did that, man. I'm a failure. I'm a piece of crap. I can't believe I ate a dozen donuts. I can't believe I, I just masturbated. Now I got to go sit in front of my kids and have family home evening, or I got to go to church. I got to give the talk on Sunday. This is like, it's a mental it's mental. And, and now what, now, who do we talk to? How do we go? Now I know I just sinned. I got to talk to somebody. I'm feeling unworthy. I don't want to take the sacrament, but if I don't take the sacrament, my wife's going to know. Now it just compounds into till that cycle starts going faster and faster. Now check this out. Here's my cycle. Every morning, my phone would ring. Set my right? My trigger in my head was my alarm clock. I reached over my phone. I grabbed it. 
And where did my mind go? I'm single. I don't have a wife anymore. So I start scrolling ESPN. Oh, I'm going to look at NFL. And then I'm bored. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder what it's out there. So I start looking at those porn sites. So I just went from a trigger, a thought, and now I'm into a craving mode. And as soon as I get that craving, I use and I'm remorseful again. Understand is you can hit that cycle. It might be, it might take you 10 days to get through that cycle and start it again. But as soon as you start to get into pornography use, that cycle goes faster and faster until you may be looking at pornography and masturbating five, six times a week. And then you're to a point, you're like, how do I break this? I'm just pacifying it. And so that's what the, that's where it gets kind of scary. And then the attachment with church and what do I do? How do I come worthy again? Who do I talk to? Do I tell my bishop? Can we work through it? Does he have the skills to work through it? And so, Richard, it's just, it's just compounds, and it, it's a scary demon. But what's funny is my opioid addiction, when I was ready, it was easy to overcome. I made the decision. I had that relationship with Christ, and it was over. When I walked out of that bathroom, I haven't touched it since that I'm almost January 11th will be 12 years. Wow. But the pornography continued. And when I dropped the opioids, my pornography use started spiraling because I just transferred that opioids into pornography. And so that's what that's a scary decision right there. Um, I love you being so honest and frank. I think uh, men need to have honest, frank people in their life to talk about this in a factual way. And you have a gift for that. And I think that's great. And I think it mentors us that need to be talking to others about it to talk about it in similar ways. And it's very helpful for those that are working to put porn use behind them just to have a pretty direct, factual discussion. Because my guess is it resonates with them. And they're just saying, he gets it. He knows how I feel. He knows the cycle. He knows everything about this. So um, he can help me walk me out of this challenge. So, um, and it's interesting that your pornography use increased after the opiate because there's still sort of this cycle going on that still needs to be. So just, you could talk more about putting this behind you after the opioid, or you could talk about anything you want to talk to about. Yeah, I, I really question and and people don't really understand why it spiked it's it's you transfer your addiction and uh, most people that have an addiction or dual diagnosis or dual addictions understand this process and what i realized is my addiction cycle was the same it kept kept being reciprocal and i realized that i could repeat it for something more positive so in in my life i tried to take the gym and implement it into the same way that I was using pornography or opioids because to use opioids took a lot of time to look at pornography takes a lot of time. So if I could dedicate that time to those things, can I transfer that into something else in my life? So what's interesting is I started utilizing that in my professional life with my men and women who are in the program. So this is a this is an interesting segue for you. We we know about behavior modification. 
the military uses it every day, correct? To make them soldiers. And so in my program, I mandated that our men and women would go to the gym and we CrossFit three times a week, six o'clock in the morning. And these men did this for saw massive gains, did amazing. But as soon as they were done working out in the six months, they didn't continue when they went home. And I was always baffled by it. I'm like, wait a minute. I've changed their behavior. They're no longer using drugs. They're in the gym. They're working out. They're looking better. They're feeling better. They've changed their eating habits. But all I did was change their behavior for a time. Now, you can stop looking at pornography for a time. People go years and not use drugs. People go years and not use alcohol. And then you hear about these relapses. So you may have changed your behavior, but have you changed your nature? Has the nature of the person of you. So when I walked out of that bathroom, my nature had changed, not my behaviors, not my drug use, not my pornography use, but my nature towards the drugs. And I slowly was able to change that nature into pornography. And I did that by, in my personal way, was developing a relationship with Christ. I realized that when I started using pornography, my relationship with Christ suffered dramatically. And if I could implement him in my life as a addiction or new behaviors or a nature change, my life would there become better. And so my triggers, I started turning on music that would empower me. I started listening to the Book of Mormon when I traveled. And I know these seemed like, oh, these are so trivial things. To me, they weren't because they were filling the gap that I used in my active addiction. So I hope that kind of explains a little bit. It does. It's very helpful. And I love this nature. You're, and that's sort of the bottom of the, I kind of, I hope it's okay. I use the bottom of the iceberg because that works for me. But I guess at the bottom of the iceberg with opiate, you change your nature. And so the top of the behavior at the top of the iceberg opiate use ended. And that's what you've done with pornography is you change your nature about that through the things you're talking about. So there was no need for pornography uses. You really change the core of you using Christ. A lot of the people I've talked to, that's a big part of their journey to work through addiction Addiction is the role of Christ. And I think one of the lies is we go solve this all ourselves and then we turn to Christ. We're, we add to his burden if we turn to him in the middle of the addiction because the cross sees gearing get heavier because we're turning to him. And so our Puritan culture sometimes says, solve this all on our own. And then we'll sort of represent ourselves to the church or our family or Christ when we're done. And I love the way in the middle of the addiction, in the middle of the story, you're turning to Christ and recognize that he wants to take our burden. He's already paid the price and he can handle it. And I love the simple things you do, but the powerful things you do to manage the triggers and so that your nature has changed. Very, very helpful. So we're kind of in the last 10 minutes, but I'd love to just have you share whatever you'd like to share in the next 10 minutes. Yeah. yeah. You, you just hit the nail on the head right there. You talk about the love of Christ and you, I'm getting, I'm getting, oh, 
when I start talking about this, Richard, I got to be honest, I get emotional sometimes, Good, but uh, we, we, we missed the most important step. We almost missed the magic in our recovery, in our journey. What I realized, and you just said that Jesus Christ suffered for us. And when he died on the cross and when he took the atonement and he did the atonement for us, he took upon us everything. And I had got to a point in my life where I kind of became angry at him. Growing up, I had some, I had some trauma. Okay. And I remember thinking, man, why did I have to go through this? My sister's experience, my sister experienced, I saw it in the home. Um, and it was difficult, but we kind of put it behind us and we, and we grew from it. But the problem is, if you don't heal your past, if you can't heal what's, what's behind you, those things that are pushing us to use, these Pornography and opium for me was a medication. It was the only thing that made my brain slow down and make me feel comfortable. And people that have trauma, when we use, we're using it for a reason. We're using our medication for a reason. We want to kill it. And until we confront it, until we talk about it, until we get past it, we cannot heal. And the only way we can heal the past is through the love of Jesus Christ. And that, that might sound like, oh, I, all I got to do is turn to Christ. That's all you got to do because he wants to take it from us. He didn't want you to experience those incidents when you were a child. He didn't want you to experience. And, and, and I, I'm living with incidents where I'm having infidelity for no reason. I wasn't unhappy totally. I could have made it through. I just was. I had all these other demons and the only thing that would quash the chaos was and more text messaging and more chaos. Like I felt like if I had all these lines of communication with other women open, I was, I was at ease. And that to people that don't use, they're thinking you are a nut, but that's what was happening in my life. I had ventured so far from Jesus Christ and the atonement that a lot away. And when the closer I got to him, the more powerful the adversary got. And so that's where that struggle, that's where you're changing from a nature to from, from a behavior to nature. And that's what people have to understand is it's not easy to overcome these addictions, but we have to, we have to, that's part of this process that Christ gave us to be forgiven for these. And the coolest thing was, I just got remarried to my wife. I, I just got married in the temple. So we were married three years ago. We just went to the temple uh, a couple months ago. And I'm telling you, That's I cool. just sat, I, I just sat in there. I was like, oh my gosh, this is my third marriage. I'm in the temple for the third time. I'm honestly, finally happy. And it wasn't, and, and what the problem is, is it wasn't those other women's fault. It was my fault. It was my fault. It, I needed to take ownership of it. But now sitting in the temple with my wife and having that experience to be sealed and knowing that I was worthy this time made all the difference in the world. And it was only possible through the atonement of Jesus Christ. That's all. That's awesome. Uh, 
I'd love you to talk to your 19, 18-year-old self. That's you talking to teenagers right now that they're not talking to anybody about pornography use. Talk to your younger self right now with all you know now. Well, the problem is I'm, I'm, I'm years, I'm 11 years deep into pornography by this time. Yeah, because, you, you know, because I started at eight. eight so, so you got to, so, so, so I, I got to, I got to talk to him. But this was when I was on a mission, my 19 year old self it was probably the best self that I wasn't in, in the time because, and that's what I always went back to. I was like, why was it that I could in pornography for those two years? But as soon as I got home and feel, started feeling pressure and stress, my my medication was pornography. Like it didn't make sense to me. I had a personal relationship with Christ for those two years and I stopped cold Turkey, but I picked it back up when I got home. And so if, if I was to talk to myself today, I would tell him the basic things, get back in your scriptures because that's the first to go start fasting with purposes Start going to church and taking the sacrament worthily and prepare yourself to find the right relationship. It's not what you see on the TV screen. It's not what you see on your phone. It's not what you see in the magazines. And that was a problem that I had is I had a misconstrued idea of what sex was supposed to look like in a marriage. I thought it was going to be what I was seeing in the magazine and what I saw on my phone. And it wasn't, we can't keep up like that. I mean, I look back, I'm like, Oh, I feel so. And here's Richard an honest, I'm going to give you a little bit of me. I feel horrible for the destruction that I caused in these other women's lives. It wasn't their fault. I mean, what was, were there things that we could have done better in a relationship? Yes. But I wasn't mature enough to have a relationship with a woman. I wasn't mature enough to not look at pornography. So how am I supposed to have a relationship with a woman? That was tough. Yeah. And that's honest. And I reckon I love your honesty. You, and when I'm aware of somebody that knows that they've caused pain in another person, in this case, it sounds like your former wives. I think we just have to, like you've probably done, is let the Savior heal the other person. We can't heal everybody in our circle. And especially when a relationship has ended, we know that we may have caused pain or that person is suffering, um, even in a, and I think we just have to let the Savior heal the other person, recognize that person as a children of heavenly parents. I'd love you to talk to yourself in the bathroom, that seven days of hell on, you know, maybe day one or day two, and you, you're you would probably never believe on day one or day two that you are where you are right now. But I'd love you to talk to your younger self in the bathroom because there's maybe some people in the bathroom right now that are going to do what you have done. Um, talk to your younger self on day one or day two or whatever the very worst day was. Ooh, man, I have never been asked that question. And there, there, that's, a real, that's a real assessment. What would I, I would tell him you're not going to die. There were, I remember there were moments in that bathroom. Where I'm like, this is it. This is, this is how I'm going to die. My family, they're going to find me in here naked. 
they're going to find me in here with this cold shower running. I'm going to be on the dead floor dead. And it's going to be a lot long time after because I had alienated everybody. Nobody was coming to check on me. And that would be, that would be one thing is rebuild your relationships. I had alienated everybody in my life. Nobody was coming through that front door to save me. Nobody knew I was in that bathroom. That that's a scary disposition. When you get in your life, get so far removed from relationships because your addiction kills it. So first thing I would say is go find those people who love you and grab onto them because they're the ones that are going to get you through it. The next one is your savior. Like, even though I felt alone, he never left me in day three and day seven, he talked to me. And I know people are like, Oh, Brock, you were so sick. You were hallucinating. Listen, I know what that feels like. I know the voice that I heard. And, and that's why I don't ever want to use again. I'm, I'm one. I'm scared to ever feel that again. Cause Richard, I thought I was, I really did think I was dying, but number two, I made a commitment with God. I made a commitment that bathroom that he was going to let me be different. So in day two, I need to have that foresight that, listen, this is just the time. This is just another one of these experiences that you have to get through. Do it. Finish where you started. And that's what it kept going through my mind is you're this far in. Imagine if you get three to four days and you use a pill and then you're right back in this progression of a disease. You know that everybody says drug and alcohol, it's a progressive disease. And people are like, what does that mean? Progressive disease means if I was using five pills a day and I haven't used in a year, I'm going right back to those five pills a day because that's where I left off. I'm not going back to one pill. Oh, okay, I'm good. No, I'm crushing those five pills again using them. If I'm drinking 20 beer a night, I'm going right back to that because that's what I know. That's how it's a progressive disease. So I would tell myself, you got to get through this one way or the other. I love that. Um, you know, listeners, I think our finest moments in mortality are the moments when what we do in the very difficult times of our life, I think our Savior knows that we're going to have difficult times in our life and make mistakes, but I think the greatest test of our character is what we do when we're in our darkest spots and what we're able to learn from and grow. And I think that's a lot of um, our journey in mortality is not to live a life of perfection or a mistake-free life, but to learn from our, I don't, that's not an invitation. Brock and I aren't giving you an invitation mm. to make mistakes, but I think... Um, mortality is a chance to learn from mistakes and put them behind us and then be able to do what you do is um, change others people's lives through my story and that's um what people in our scriptures have done at times and it gives us hope and perspective but it's so grounded in the savior um so i read this quote a lot listeners brock is this i kind of paraphrased it earlier a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded about the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of a desert by someone who's never been there. And so you are the wounded healer, Brock. You, um, 
And I get emotional because there's so many people that need you and the things you're teaching. And really, you're pointing people not necessarily to you, but to the Savior. And you're a median to do that through the work you're doing. And um, But you also can authentically lead people to the Savior because you know this brutal desert you've been in. And um, I don't know if this was your life plan to have some experience in these deserts so that you could heal people. I don't quite know how all that works, but I have to think the Savior is really happy. Um, and you probably would do lots of do-overs in your life. And there's some things that perhaps aren't solvable when you talk about relationships. And I think if you or others feel that way in our lives, we just leave that at the Savior and worry about the things we can control as we move forward. And I think that's what our Heavenly Father wants and say, everybody's my children and and I will work on um, on helping everybody in your circle, even if there's people who have it's difficult, the circumstances around our individual journeys. I'd love to have you just, if there were one social media platform that people start with, so if there's one place that they know they can connect with you, because you've got a couple you've mentioned, tell people where to go. This is my name, Brock Bevel, B-R-O-C-K-B-E-V-E-L-L. It's on all the social media platforms and it links up. So everybody check out um, Brock Bevel, B-E-V-E-L-L. It's not a hard name to find. Um, we will link to um, this podcast, those platforms so you can connect with. And I can encourage you to connect with them. These are platforms of hope and healing. And I love what you're doing with, I believe, Blue is the other name you mentioned, is Max and the agent of recovering, Chase the Vase, and just all the different things you're doing. Any final words you'd love to leave our listeners, Brock? Yeah, you know, I would, I want to leave this. Number one, there's hope. And number two, I want to give you a, a kind of a challenge to think about what it's going to be like when we get to see the Savior face to face. You you asked about the do-overs. I, I would love to do some do-overs, but I'm so thankful that I went through it. Good. I wouldn't be the guy I am today. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be as as patient with people or understanding, I would be that same guy I was when I was a police officer. And so there's hope and imagine yourself seeing him. Cause I know that, that interaction with Christ is going to be amazing for all of us, but I don't know. Do you high five him? Do you hug him? Do you follow his feet? I mean, I, I don't know. I just can't wait to, I can't wait to see it because of the emotions that I feel for him. Yeah. Really great closing statement. So Brock Bevel, I'm so glad listeners, we canceled this podcast. I canceled on Brock last week and um, I almost didn't do this podcast. Brock has been hanging in there with me and we finally got on today. And this has been deeply moving for me personally. Um, it gives me hope in humanity, hope in the future. Um, and I'm so grateful for Brock and the life you're living and the ability you have to bring hope and healing to others. There is light and goodness in your life, and you can see that. And you mm. are in your late 40s. You've got several decades of, of this road. And I think if I talk to you in a couple decades, I'll be 80, but you'll be 60 um, or late 60s. I think this is the space you'll probably still be in to some extent. I think this is your life mission. And um, I think you're laying a foundation here with the things you're doing that will be part of what you do for the rest of your life in one way or another. And it's so needed. And so this is Richard Austin and Brock Bevel signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.